Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, the Financial Times podcast on British politics. I'm Miranda Green, and in the fourth of our summer specials, we're breaking out of the news cycle to take a look at some of the big policy questions facing the UK. This week, we'll be looking at education. The country is locked in an argument about who should pay for expanding undergraduate degrees. State schools are facing a funding shake-up that will see many have to tighten their belts considerably. And we may or may not be paying attention to an ambitious government skills plan that may or may not ever happen. I am delighted to dive into all this with Claire Barrett, editor of FT Money, our employment correspondent Sarah O'Connor, and Nigel Kahan, research director of the Social Market Foundation. Thank you all for joining us. First of all, we'll turn to the higher education rumpus, which has been building for some time, but came to the fore in the recent general election campaign when Jeremy Corbyn promised to scrap tuition fees. Claire, tuition fees in England, Scotland and Wales are now all diverging, but there does seem to be this wellspring of anger. How worried are families and young people about the spectre of all this debt? And why are they so angry now? What has changed? Well, there was a big change to both the student loan system and tuition fees in 2012, where basically the maximum level that universities could charge per year for a course rose to £9,000. It's now a little bit over that. And very rapidly, nearly every university in the land, it has to be said, whether it's Oxford or Cambridge or whether it's a red brick or whether it's a so-called polyversity, is charging £9,000 per year per course. So while students can borrow that money, they also have to borrow money in the form of a maintenance loan to support their studies while they're and at university. And that's quite new, right? That's another yes. more recent change. So the poorer students up until 2016, are we allowed to use the word poor on a podcast, the, the children from less well-affluent backgrounds were able to apply for a means-tested grant beforehand, which of course they wouldn't have to pay back. But this was all changed to a maintenance loan system in 2016. And it's actually caught out a lot of FT readers who are parents. And as the money editor of FT, we get lots and lots of letters from people. A typical one I got this week from a lady called Deborah. She said, my daughter's expecting her A-level results. She's applied to Bristol University, which is where I went. So I'm delighted. I really want her to go there. But I've just found out that the maintenance loan that she'll get won't be enough to even begin to cover the costs of putting her up in accommodation there because while the maximum loan a student living away from home maintenance loan can get is just over £8,000 that will be higher if they're in London. If you're a parent earning more than about £62,000 a year the minimum loan will be given out which is less than £4,000 so there's this variable means tested amount. And parents are expected to make up the difference, but this is not explicitly spelled out to them. Now, had Deborah known about this, she maybe would have encouraged her daughter to take a year out, possibly even two years out, because as the only parent who's earning in that family, can't afford 
the costs of accommodation. I had a look online this morning at all of the halls of residence in Bristol. You have to get them for 50 weeks a year. And the average cost for a room in one of them is about six and a half thousand pounds a year. So these are really, really big sums of money that parents are having to come up with. Now, you could say, well, you know, the middle class parents, they've got excess savings. They can save up and prepare for this. The poorer students are the ones who are really in the shtuk because they're going to end up with a bigger debt at the end of it because they get to borrow more money. And of course, this is the other big change that's happened, the interest rates that are applied to these loans, which are racking up, by the way, while you are studying, which is a big shock to a lot of students and parents who read the FT money section. And it's linked to inflation. RPI, which is Sarah will tell you, is the the higher measure of inflation um, compared to CPI, plus 3% is how they're calculated. So that means that your student loan while you're at university is racking up at a rate of 6.1% and it could be that high afterwards depending on what you earn. So in fact there's been lots of changes in more recent years which have changed the system from one that was designed to share the burden between students with debt, families and indeed the state and there's now a really big financial burden on families. There is but it also boils down to how we understand student debt. And lots of people, including Martin Lewis, the founder of Money Saving Experts, say that student loans should be rebranded. They shouldn't be called loans because they don't operate like loans in the conventional sense. He says it should be described as a graduate tax or graduate contribution because you may be put off if you come from a poorer background and you have to borrow the full amount of both the tuition fee and the maintenance loan. That will mean that you will be faced with debts of around £60,000 by the time you leave university, which frankly would have put me off. However... The amount that you pay back works like an extra layer of income tax. When you start to earn more than 21000 a year, I think, whatever your income above that level is, you will pay back 9% of that proportion. And if you haven't paid the whole loan back within 30 years, then, as the rules stand at the moment, it's written off. So Martin Lewis has written two different columns for FT Money, which you can see, ft.com slash money, look for Martin Lewis, they're free to read where he explains even if you had a student loan of a billion pounds or (laughs) £60,000, you would still pay back the same amount. And after 30 years, it would be written off. And the Institute for Fiscal Studies famously said quite recently that the level of student debt is so high that three quarters of students will probably never pay off the full loan during their lifetime. What I worry about, however, is will this 30-year rule be extended in the future so it will take 35, 40 or even 50 years to extinguish that debt and I have no confidence that the government won't be tempted to have a tinker. Well indeed because you do get the feeling they're being a bit naughty about this for example that £21,000 earnings threshold when the repayments kick in that was supposed to go up but it stayed where it is which has also made it more onerous for people. Sarah during the election campaign Jeremy Corbyn famously talked about a reckoning on the way This does seem to be being realised in a really dramatic generational divide in voting. You're much closer to that student generation than I am, for example. I mean, do you really think that a huge mass rebellion is on the way? You wrote this week, for example, that students in the surveys are starting to think twice about university as an aspiration. Yeah, I think there really is a rebellion on the way and I can totally understand it. And I'm flattered that you would put me more in that generation than yours. But actually... It's all relative, Sarah. Yeah, so I'm 32. (laughs) So I graduated in 2006. And what that really brings home to me, like listening to Claire explaining the way the student loans work now, it's totally different to how it was for my generation. So even though I'm not that much older, I had a far, far better deal 
So I left university with about £10,000 worth of debt. My interest rate, I think it was base rate or CPI, whichever was the lower. And not long after I graduated, interest rates were slashed to 0.5%. And as a result, I paid off my loan after about six years of working here at the FT. So it is just totally, totally different. And these subtle changes that have come in on top of the nine grand fees, I think really have made people very angry. And Claire's quite right that just the simple cost of how much you have to spend to be a student these days has gone up massively. There are these surveys that are now suggesting that school pupils, so 11 to 16 year olds, are beginning to think twice about going to university. I mean, I would take that with a slight pinch of salt, because when you look at the actual data on UCAS applications, they're still going up. And this year, there was a record of 38% of 18-year-olds that were eligible did apply. So we're not seeing it in the real data yet, but there are these little indications. And also, there's fascinating battles brewing between the current generation of students and the government. So there's this massive thing called the National Student Survey, which is a survey of all final year undergraduates asking are they satisfied with their courses with the quality of teaching etc and this year a whole bunch of students from a variety of very good universities boycotted it and said actually we don't want to fill in this survey and the reason is you're going to use it as a pretext to allow our institutions to raise tuition fees in line with inflation and so there are 12 very good Russell Group institutions that are not in that survey this year which will cause a headache for the government. It's fascinating isn't it Nigel because in fact Way back since the Blair era, these successive governments have tried to create a functioning market in higher education. But as we've heard, it's a very, very flawed market indeed, isn't it? The £9,000 and the £3,000 were supposed to be fee caps under which there were variable fees. So you were charged as to how good and how indeed valuable in terms of your future earnings your course was going to prove. That hasn't happened at all, has it? I wouldn't say it hasn't happened at all, but certainly there are significant dilemmas in the HE market. I think this issue about universities bunching their fees around the £9,000 mark, I'm not so worried about the structure of the loan system. I am worried about the functioning of the market in that sense. I think you had Lord Adonis on your programme last week, who's been saying quite a lot on this sort of topic over the last few months. And That's right, the education brains behind the Blair. Well, exactly. Edu- so reforms, um, he, he's yeah. questioning the loan system, but interesting, he's also talking about the Competition and Markets Authority. Um, he's arguing it should do an inquiry into the structure of the market. And I think that has some more merit, really, because how competitive is the market? You're right that from the Blair years onwards, it's not just in HE, it's also in schools. You know, they're trying to empower parents and prospective university applicants to go and seek out the very best school or very best university and I suppose the hope was if the individual bears more of the cost of going to university then they might look even more keenly at the prospects that a particular university might offer them. We've seen some interesting stats coming out in the last couple of months so we saw the teaching and excellence framework which essentially ranks universities between gold, silver and bronze. And this is a new measure. Yeah, it's a new measure. So it looks at things like what students think about their courses. It looks at graduate employment outcomes when they leave the university. And it looks at retention rates for the university. So it's meant to be quite a basic way of prospective applicants thinking about which university they should go to. So I think the government's in a position at the moment where I don't think we have the right level of competitiveness in the market, which is shown partly by bunching of pricing. But we do have a number of new measures. So arguably, you might want to wait a bit to see if those have an effect. But also, I think it would be interesting to have a regulator. I mean, we already have Offer, which is going to become the Office for Students. But 
sometimes you turn to the Competition and Markets Authority. Well, that is a key point, isn't it, Claire? If you're wanting to create a market in undergraduate degrees, you have to have informed consumers so they can work out literally whether it's worth it taking on these huge financial burdens. And at the moment, a lot of 17, 18-year-olds thinking about where to apply or even whether to apply are flying blind. Well, certainly... The other point I'd make very quickly is that fine to say we need a regulator to look into fees and competition, but the other side of it, which is just as expensive, frankly, and maybe just as scandalous, is where people live when they're at university. There's been an absolute massive expansion of the private sector providing purpose-built student accommodation, which is incredibly expensive. The universities used to run it themselves. Maybe it wasn't fantastic but it was very cheap. Now it might be whizzier, but it's very, very expensive. And the private landlords, the buy-to-let landlords, I can say this as the parent of a stepchild myself who's at university, they know that it's their market. Three months rent up front because they want to know that they'll get the rent before the student loan disappears. They don't want to charge you a monthly rent. They insist on three months because they know that's when the payments arrive and they don't trust the kids to budget. But it means that parents have got to come up with absolutely eye-watering sums, guarantee their rent, and that in itself is enough to cripple the finances of many a family. Yes, so actually it's the financial decisions around going to university, not just the fee regime itself. Nigel, I just want to ask you a related question before we move on to other education topics. There's also a parallel row going on about top people's pay in university, specifically the vice-chancellors who seem to have been through remuneration committees over which the government has no influence, being awarded really extravagant six-figure salaries, which at a time when everyone else in education is tightening their belts and when students feel hard done by because of this loans and fees regime we've been talking about, if you actually want to create more of a responsive market that functions as you've described... Do you need to make institutions completely free over these decisions, such as how much you pay your vice-chancellor? Or is it yet another sign of it not working properly? It's very hard to judge. I dare on the side of giving them freedom and focusing on making sure the market works effectively, given that's the trend of policy at the moment. So if we're trying to empower students as consumers and give them the strength to hold institutions to account, then I think we should follow that through. If we find that we can't succeed down that route, then you have to return to what would be essentially central regulation, where you have more grant funding, and with grant funding comes government being happier to control levels of spending. I would just say that if you're going to control the salary of, say, a VC in a particular institution, might you then also worry about the salaries of professors and readers and senior lecturers and lecturers? Where does it stop? Well, those are considerably lower. I think that's probably why it's such a hot topic at the moment. But I take your point about accountability in a functioning market. Claire, do you have much sympathy for people at the top of universities who say that they need to be paid upwards of half a million a year to run these complex institutions? Or do you think this is also something that's got people cross? I have absolutely no sympathy for these people whatsoever, nor do I have sympathy for the chief executive of FTSE companies who are paid enormous salaries. From the point of view of an investor consumer or from an educational consumer, these figures stick in the craw, especially 
if there are so many users of these systems who feel like they're getting a raw deal. It's a really, really bad advert. And frankly, when I was looking at what university to go to, I was more impressed in the prospectus by who the professors were, what they'd done, what books they'd written, whether I'd seen them on TV or not. And if you can attract the right calibre of academic to a university, that should be more important and better rewarded than the chief executive who's just making money out of the whole thing. Sarah, just to finish on this higher education section of our chat... It's not the case, is it, necessarily, that the surveys of students and where they think they've got a good deal are the same at all as the data on where the top earnings are in terms of, for example, I think if you're male and you do economics at the LSE, you're right at the top of the graduate earnings table. But a recent survey of student satisfaction put the LSE quite low, for example, in terms of teaching time, contact time with the research academics, etc. So how are students going to get themselves informed about where to put their money? Because it's big investment now, as Claire has described. Absolutely. I mean, you're completely right. And LSE is the perfect example because the people who go there go there probably because partly they know that this is a ticket to getting a very good job. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll enjoy themselves while they're at universities. And actually, all of the London based universities are very cross about this teaching excellence framework because a lot of the metrics are based on student satisfaction. And the fact is that if you go to uni in London, you tend not to be very satisfied. Probably goes back to what Claire was saying, you know, you're paying an absolute fortune, living in a big city where everyone else is richer than you. It's just not that fun. So yeah, I just feel so bad for 18-year-olds. They're sitting there, they're having to make the biggest financial decision of their lives to date, and frankly, probably their biggest financial decision until they buy a house, brackets, if they ever do. And they have very little data to go on. So there has been some really good work done by academics on graduate earnings from different institutions. But so far, a lot of the data hasn't been publicly released. So they really are flying blind. And I think that's a travesty. So higher education has become a huge problem in terms of undergraduates, but it's still quite important as a regional economic actor, isn't it, Nigel? We've seen that, for example, in a city like Sheffield, the university interacting with manufacturing and indeed interacting with the local schools and colleges can make a big difference to the region. Yes. I think the data we saw early in the year from the government's industrial strategy about regional economic performance was pretty stark, showing that really, apart from London and the southeast, the other regions have kind of gone backwards or only stayed still over the last couple of decades. And in that instance, skills institutions have a huge role to play. We often do think about universities and higher education, but... I think equally important is further education, colleges. It's often really the Cinderella of our skills system, but yet we do send a lot of young people through that. For some students, it's a second chance they very much need. Maybe they didn't have the motivation or support or the right fit with their school when they were young, but a further education college can be the route to a second chance in a career. There's quite a few challenges in this area. One of them is the issue of funding and Part of this is the way that government thinks about higher education and further education. There was an implication, actually an interesting one in the Conservative manifesto, they might have a review of all education post-18 and think of it as one. Well, it's absolutely massive amount of money, the skills budget. I mean, FE colleges educate a phenomenal number of people, don't they? They do. And if you think about the challenges as we leave the European Union, we've obviously been quite reliant on skills coming with people as they move from the continent over to here. And we have a shortage in the UK in terms of higher technical skills. 
you put those things together and I think you do need a bit of a shift here over to the further education system. Sarah, how bad is our mismatch in the UK between the skills the economy really needs and those skills which would give individuals something to sell in the labour marketplace and how we equip our school leavers? Because we all sit around bemoaning that we are not like Germany. Should we, in fact, turn into Germany? I think that is a solution that a lot of people have come up with over the years and yet it has constantly eluded us. But yeah, it is shocking that 60% of 18-year-olds don't go to university and yet we spend all of our time talking about the university system and actually we need to think much more about how on earth are this majority of young people going to equip themselves with the skills that businesses need. And companies complain time and time again that school leavers in particular just don't have what they require. To a certain extent, this is something that corporate Britain has always complained about and actually employers across the world complain about. And sometimes I think they need to get off their high horse and accept that they need to do a little bit of training themselves. They can't think that the education system will do everything. But that said, there were some OECD data that came out a couple of years ago that were truly astonishing, I thought, comparing the UK to other countries. And it found that young people in the UK, 16 to 29-year-olds, actually have worse basic literacy and numeracy skills than 30 to 54-year-olds. In almost every other country, it's the other way around. The younger generation has the better skills. But in our country, it's the opposite. And I think that should really make us question what we're doing something wrong. So we've got this really terrible twin threat, which is not enough higher technical education, which might even be at the university level where technical course sign-ups have been going down for the last few years really dramatically. And also just in terms of basic skills of literacy and numeracy, the education system seems to be not delivering at all, which is potentially an economic disaster post-Brexit. It's also a social disaster. I mean, you're seeing now that the people who are neat, so that's people who are not in education or training or in work, the numbers who stay neat for a long time are actually going up. So this is like a growing chunk of the population that's just slipped through the net. And the longer they stay out of work or education, the more unemployable they will get. And setting aside the economic problem, that's a social problem. So, Nigel, watching the education world, I've seen several secretaries of state come and go and they do tend to, once they're in power, notice this yawning gap in provision around skills and come up with a grand plan. You know, under the Blair government, it was diplomas. Now, the May government have these propositions for T levels, technical levels, which is a whole new set of routes through the education system into particular careers. Is this a big chance to improve life chances for the low paid and for non-graduates? I'm very worried it will fizzle out as previous plans have done. I think successive governments have tried to put technical vocational education on some kind of a par with academic education. By asserting it. Yeah, by saying parity of esteem and that Mm. doesn't work. This is a bit more of a systematic effort to do that. In parallel with that, of course, there's a big focus now on apprenticeships as a route to technical training with a commitment to three million in the latter part of this decade. So I think there is more structure around it. One of the questions is whether there may be too much structure. So are we creating too much of a binary divide between academic and vocational education? Are people having to select their career, as it were, at a younger age? Will people be able to switch from doing technical courses 16 to 18 over into higher education? We've actually had some success on that front in the past. And that's been quite a good route, actually, of getting people from more disadvantaged backgrounds into university. That's true, isn't it, actually? There are all sorts of pathways through where you can switch between 
vocational and academic mm. and end up quite well served by both, but they're not well understood or known about possibly. No, they're not. And I think the danger is by emphasising that there's a technical route versus academic route, you do put people into two streams. I think there's some big challenges in terms of the apprenticeship gender. So the government may well hit the target of the numbers, but the question really is around the quality of those apprenticeships. So how much value are we adding to the individuals that we train? If you look at apprenticeships that have been done, say, in the first part of this decade, it's only really at the higher levels that they add much value. In manufacturing, we know they add quite a lot of value. Once you go down to level two qualifications, they may add value but it's not statistically clear whether they do so the challenge on that side is as much of the quality of what we provide as the quantity. Sarah the government have got this very ambitious three million target on apprenticeships as we know targets can often push things awry and have unintended consequences and this has been a big push since 2010 on apprenticeships from politics I know the reason it's on the front page of everyone's manifesto is because people love it on the doorstep but what's the reality is this delivering change my big scepticism on apprenticeships you're totally right to raise the quality question because in the past a lot of them have been very poor quality but the other issue for me now is that they brought in this apprenticeship levy which is a way of forcing companies to pay for apprenticeships themselves well fair enough why should the taxpayer continue to pay companies the ones arguably that benefit so there's nothing wrong with that per se but the incentives that it has created for companies is to think how can i get the most value out of these and actually that is not to hire a lot of 18 year olds out of school and put them on level 2 apprenticeships it is to take your middle managers, people like you, Miranda, put you on a very high-level <laughs> management apprenticeship, which will then enhance your skills further. And will it make will me have... editor? Yeah. Absolutely, you'll be editor within <laughs> six months. And I think that is what a lot of companies are planning to do. So what we will see is there will be apprenticeships, but they're not what people think of when they see those manifestos and they hear the word apprenticeship. They think this is young kids coming out of school and learning how to be a welder, but it won't be that. It'll be middle managers sitting in offices learning how to do appraisals better. So Nigel, this is my question for you on both HE and on this skills agenda. One of the problems seems to be that you encourage a proliferation of courses, for example, but actually what you end up with through a kind of quasi-market is the wrong stuff. So you might end up with a lot of rebadged management courses, now called apprenticeships, and in HE, under the new expansion particularly, you might end up with a lot of second-rate business courses which really don't serve people well in the labour market. How do you deal with that when you're moving away from command and control? Firstly, you've got to consolidate the number of courses and qualifications that are available, which the government has been doing. I can't remember the number. It was something ridiculous. Like, it wasn't higher than 30,000. It was around there earlier in the decade. And through these technical routes, they're trying to simplify it to make it easier for the person entering the course, but also for employers when they undertake the training and also maybe for future employers to see the value. So I think there's a consolidation exercise. A big issue is how you ascertain what the future economy needs which you're alluding to which is very very hard i suppose in germany they have a corporatist model where they get unions employers government together and in a way they collectively decide what that will be in the uk at the moment we're moving a bit in that direction by giving employers some control of the new standards for apprenticeships which is what they're called I think the challenge there really is that you can imagine really big employers maybe being engaged but obviously they're only a part of the economy what about future businesses? What about SMEs who may have quite different needs? 
So I think the government's getting halfway there. Getting fully there, I think, is pretty difficult. Okay, and there's a regional dimension to it, isn't there? Because the outcomes are very different educationally, certainly across the English regions and the nations of the UK. And also the skills needs of industry are very different from region to region. I wanted to bring us on towards the end of our discussion now to the subject of schools policy, because there's been a lot going on there as well. But Nigel, you've done some research at the SMF recently on inequality of educational outcomes. And there are really bad regional disparities, aren't there? There are, yeah. We had a cross-party commission on educational inequalities, really looking at sort of school-aged children and seeing how things had changed between people born in the 1970s and people born in the 2000s. And it makes really pretty depressing reading. So if you look at family income and the effect that has on the educational outcomes of the children, there's still a huge difference. And in fact, it's about the same level of effect as it was back in the 1970s. If you look at regional differences, actually some of those have grown. So we know at the moment that London outperforms the other regions. It's quite significant if you look at, say, GCSEs, the usual measure is sort of five A to C grades. It's around 60% in London versus around 55% in the Midlands. But actually what's happened over time, it seems that the regional effects have actually grown. So we did some analysis looking at 11-year-olds and looking at their test scores. And you can go back and look what would happen to people who were born in the 1970s versus people born in 2000. And actually the regional effects, so kind of where you're born or where you're brought up, the effects seem to be increasing over time. It's very difficult to tackle, isn't it? The May government before the election, riding high, had this grand plan to reintroduce grammar schools. That's clearly been abandoned given the election humiliation that they suffered. But Justine Greening, the Education Secretary, has survived post-election and they've also rearranged the funding arrangements for state schools. That played very badly for them in the election because, of course, urban centres, not least London, who've done very well in improving results in recent years, are going to lose out. Is it a good time for them to be reassessing the whole funding arrangements of the state school system? Well, it seems to be they've come to a position where they do try some reform, but they bring some additional money in. I mean, the issue when you try and redistribute a sort of a a set amount of money is that the losers will be more upset than the winners are happy. So that's always the case. I think where our work ended up is that we should really worry more about teachers, leaders and parents and we should about, let's say, the sort of institutional infrastructure, whether it's grammar schools or not. And one of the big challenges when you mentioned the regional issue is getting the best teachers into schools where poorer kids are and getting the best teachers into schools which may be more isolated geographically. So do you think they should be paid more essentially to work in areas of disadvantage? Well schools already have some freedom in that respect and sometimes they are paid more but you still see in those schools high level of turnover of teachers teachers are less experienced and teachers are less likely to have a qualification in the subject they're teaching which all kind of potentially proxies so there's a big challenge there pay is one of the responses i think another one is having an incentive that might anchor the teacher in that area so we put forward the idea of a fund that head teachers could draw down to give to people to maybe buy a home in an area so they're not only coming in for a year but they can set up roots and and stay in that area. Yeah, it's an interesting proposition, isn't it, Sarah, to try and tackle some of this generation rent issue for young teachers. I think some of the academy chains as well have suggested they ought to be allowed to buy up land around their academy schools 
and house the teachers so that they don't move on. It seems quite sensible. It is. And actually, employers from all kinds of sectors are thinking about the same thing now. It's not just the public sector thinking about schools. As house prices go up and up relative to young people's wages, then all kinds of companies are thinking, God, should we build housing? Do we need to go back to sort of company towns? It'd be fascinating to see if it happens. So it is, in fact, going to be exam results season imminently. We are in August, which is a heart-stopping time for some families as those results envelopes hit the mat. Nigel, obviously since 2010, we've had a tumultuous period of exam reform as well, particularly under Michael Gove when he was Secretary of State. Do you think that some of this introduction of what he liked to call more rigorous exam standards and a focus on academic subjects will have helped with some of these social mobility issues you've described, or in fact the reverse, because you hear both sides of the argument from education experts? I think they may help in the long term. I think in the short term, there may be issues to do with if you put everyone onto kind of a very traditional course, people who are less engaged in their education might be more likely to drop out or lose motivation. So I think there's a challenge there in the short term, There have been a number of debates around whether we are limiting our educational scope rather than maybe embracing creativity, technology. I think that's a big challenge. Well, the jobs of the future, that whole question. The jobs of the future. I I do think also it's a challenge that we think really about our educational span as youngsters from maybe four up to 21. In the decades ahead, I'll probably be retiring when I'm 68 or 69. I'm probably going to have to retrain n number of times whether that's a university or college or through my employer. The other challenge is thinking about how we get into a situation where individuals and employers retrain throughout their career. Before we go, I'm going to ask you all, what one change would you make to the UK education system, or indeed England, Wales and Scotland, since they're now very diverse, to tackle the underlying problems of education outcomes? I wonder cheekily whether any of you will say grammar schools. Claire, what would be your one godlike act. I'd really like to see some variation in the top level of tuition fees. It was supposed to be a cap. This £9,200 figure has become near universal in the degrees courses that I've been looking at for my stepchildren. I'd also like to see two-year degrees where you study more intensively but are only at university for two years because I think that would really help the financial equation for many students from poorer backgrounds. Sarah, do you have one thing? I do, and actually it follows on from what you were just saying. I think bring back night school. We should put much more funding into lifelong learning. And funding for that has been slashed. But exactly as you say, the labour market is changing quickly. We have no idea what the skills of the future will be. It's pointless trying to predict it. But the one thing we do know is that we're not going to have to stop learning when we're 21. We'll have to keep going. And so the government should give funding for everyone to do that. Nigel, what's your one prescription? At the moment, we worry about the proportion of people that go into university, and we're also worrying about the backgrounds of those people. We've had a whole stream of targets from Tony Blair onwards. But what we're seeing at the moment is we're getting better at getting people into university. We're actually getting better at getting people from disadvantaged backgrounds into university. But the people we're worrying about ultimately still drop out at quite significant rates. So I think we need to shift the whole system so we're worrying about whether they finish their course. That's the metric we should be worrying about, or even potentially setting a target for whether they enter employment and getting the whole system to focus on that rather than just thinking about whether they get in through the university door. Well, that's it for this week's episode of FT Politics. Thank you very much, Claire, Sarah and Nigel, for joining us. 
next week. Another summer special, this time looking at immigration. Thank you all for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.